Today's episode is dedicated to Tiffany. Welcome to the PTAB podcast. We are a group of paediatric trainees in the Southwest who every month review a selection of articles that we find useful for our practice. Please note, these are our own opinions and are produced for educational purposes only. They are not intended to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to the PTAB podcast. My name is Felicity Cooksey and I'm a paediatric trainee in the Seven Deanery. I'm going to start this podcast episode with a warning. As the title suggests, today we're talking about child sexual abuse. This episode is aimed at healthcare professionals. If you're someone who listens to podcasts in the background when caring for children, be warned, this episode is not suitable for young ears. This topic is very sensitive and some will find these discussions distressing. Please be kind to yourself and hit pause now if you'd like to opt out of listening to today's episode. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Michelle Cutland. She is a consultant paediatrician with a specialist interest in safeguarding and child sexual abuse. She is clinical director for a children's sexual assault referral centre based in the southwest. Michelle is an expert reviewer for the RCPCH National Child Protection Evidence Systematic Review Team and is co-clinical lead for the third edition of the Physical Signs of Child Sexual Abuse. If you have questions after listening to this episode, you can contact Michelle via her email address, which is in our show notes, or discuss any individual cases with your local safeguarding lead. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Felicity. It's lovely to be here today. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career path? So as you've said, I work as a consultant paediatrician and the clinical director for the children's part of a service based within the NHS in a sexual assault referral centre in the southwest. So in terms of my career path, I CCTs in, in general paediatrics. That's my kind of background. Probably very early on, I would say maybe the equivalent of ST3. Um, I got really interested in safeguarding more generally, child abuse and neglect, and then especially within that sexual abuse. Training up in Yorkshire, we met some of the big names who were working in the field at the time, so Dr Chris Hobbs and Dr Amanda Thomas who are really passionate about child sexual abuse and developed an interest, enhanced my own learning inside and outside of my employment at that stage. And then ended up on this path really I suppose. I worked as a named doctor safeguarding children when I first qualified as a consultant and then in the sort of subsequent four or five, six years have eventually ended up in this position, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Now, today we're going to be discussing your work and the updates to the Purple Book. I was fortunate to come to shadow you for a day earlier in my training, and I was really shocked by the statistics that you told me about sexual abuse in the UK. And one of my take-home messages from the experience was that it's incredibly important to validate young people's voices, especially given the conviction rate in child sexual abuse cases being so low. Would you mind telling our listeners about the statistics? Yeah, absolutely. So child sexual abuse, it's a tricky thing to count. Um, for lots and lots of different reasons. So a lot of children don't tell anybody, ever. Um, yeah, on average, it takes seven years for a child to disclose. They may be well into adulthood. For some situations, so for example, institutional abuse when a child is harmed in that context, it may take 30 years or more. So it's really difficult to count. 
We think, um, based on what we call our prevalence surveys, which is when adults or children, young people, are asked to reflect on things that have happened to them, usually in an anonymous kind of context, that about 500,000 children are sexually harmed under the age of 16 every year across England and Wales, which is a phenomenal amount. Mm. So it impacts and affects many, many more children. So we're talking about one child in every primary school, well, every secondary school class uh, across across the country. That doesn't tally with what agency data tells us. So it's if you look at police recorded crime statistics, I think last year it was 103 or 105,000 sexual offences against children were recorded across the year. And that also is, is many more than those that are on child protection plans for sexual abuse, for example. So it's a big problem and a problem with a big impact as well. But it's a tricky thing to count and it's a tricky thing to recognise because it is the very nature of it is that it often happens in private. It often happens within the context of relationships where children should feel safe. For many children who are sexually harmed, there are additional barriers to talking about it or getting help in that context. And there are all sorts of feelings of shame sometimes and self-blame tied into that. So it is something really difficult for children to tell us and therefore it's really difficult for us to count. So they we think, and some people think, oh, it's not that common, but it is. Yeah. And in terms of the conviction rate, because that was something that I was shocked at as well. If somebody or if a child discloses sexual abuse, how many go on to there being a conviction? Not very many, um, unfortunately. What's important to say is that that doesn't mean children aren't necessarily protected or safeguarded. Many sexual offences broadly, but it's probably worse for adults than it is for children, a very few will end up with what we call a charge or a conviction. And that's where a particular individual or individuals is essentially charged with a crime and is likely to, um, you know, have their time in court, if you like. If it gets to that point, the actual conviction rate is very good. So we're talking 60-70% of sexual offences against children that make it to court will end up with a conviction. So the conviction rate is good, but the number that are recorded by the police in terms of offences and the number that actually end up with the charge is very small. So we're we're talking under 10%. It's getting better. There's been some really proactive, interesting work over the last couple of years across sexual offences more broadly. So things have improved. There's definitely been a bit of an uptick in certain areas, but it's still the fact that for most children, the agencies know about who have been sexually abused, they do not end up with a criminal conviction in their case. And um, what does your day-to-day work involve? So about 50% of my job is still looking after children and young people in the context of sexual harm. And most of what we do in our service is children when they've been sexually abused recently, so in the last week or so. So that is taking calls from a variety of sources, providing advice, offering to see children to provide um, immediate medical care. So that might be emergency contraception or HIV prophylaxis to give them a safe space to talk about what's happened if they want to talk about it, to get to know them a little bit, to tease out what life is like for them, see if there are more broader worries or successes as well that we want to champion, and then do physical assessments if they wish us to, including looking for injuries and taking um, intimate forensic samples, again, if they want us to. So that's about half my job. The other half of the job is kind of keeping the ship steering so kind of providing kind of clinical leadership to the rest of the team looking at our data training and education having other doctors like myself <laughs> come to spend the day so we can demystify it as something to be worried about in you know in day-to-day practice more broadly 
Yeah. And in our day-to-day practice, if we were caring for a young person and they made a disclosure of recent sexual abuse, what are the next steps? And in particular, I wonder if you can tell us more about how the initial response sets the scene for future responses to professionals? Yeah, really, really good question and really, really important because, you know, anyone working in health may receive an allegation or a disclosure, depending on which word you would like to use, and how you respond is really important. So this is something you should practice at home in the mirror. If a child or a young person described harm to you, how might you respond to that? And people worry about getting it wrong, so they sometimes become a bit cold or a bit robotic, or they don't say the the usual warm things that we would say to children. So it's really important, and children have told this in research, that that response is the right response. So they need to feel uh, listened to, the conveying belief. You need to give them time. You need to use their words, use their language. And there's evidence across research that those early responses can impact on the whole recovery. Sadly, we know that a lot of children try to tell, sometimes yeah. clearly, sometimes not, and in a, up to 90% of them that that it doesn't get responded to in the right way. And that will impact on whether they'll ever try to tell again or what their personal recovery journey will look like. I do practice this sometimes, so I, I used to practice it in the mirror. Like, if someone told me, what would I say? Because I think there's some bit of muscle memory there to think about. It's like if you're breaking bad news with a child who's got a new diagnosis of leukaemia. Is it something you want to practice, right? So it's thinking about what words would I use? How would I look at them how would I sit getting that right is really really important what children often do as well is they sometimes they'll test you a little bit they might give you a little piece of information which may seem quite minor or of a lesser worry yeah Um, and they want to see what you do with that whether they feel dismissed whether they feel heard so those responses really really important if you're going to get anything right that's the bit to get right and if you take on board that information what would you want to happen next? What are the next steps? I guess the next steps, one of the key underpinning principles is that that child is an active participant in what the next steps are. It's really important that they're given choice and control as much as possible. We know that there are certain wheels that have to turn when a child describes being harmed, particularly sexual abuse, but there are ways that you can maintain their control and choice within that. It's really important that they are an active part in what happens next. So you may know what you should do next, and it's sharing that with them. You know, it might be, thank you so much for telling me. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'd really like to help you, but I need a bit of help myself to make sure I can do the right thing by you. I'd like to talk to this person about what you've told me, and this is why I'd like to talk to them. Would you like to be there while I do it? Are you happy for me to do that? Would you like to write it down? I'm going, I'd like to do it in the next hour. Is there anyone else you want to be with you? Those kind of things. So yeah. little elements of choice that you can give them moving forward. Because often once it's come out, it then goes in all sorts of different places. And there's a lot of things that happen next that children don't feel in control of. So letting them be a really active part of that from the very beginning is really important. Yeah. And what are some of the common pitfalls or mistakes that people make? That's a good question. I think probably the biggest one is the kind of, um, and all professionals do this, is the anxiety about getting it wrong. Yeah. And that can sometimes paralyse people to not ask, to not say anything, or shut children down sooner than they should. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is even before children tell you, you might have a little worry, but you're worried that 
you're wrong about this yeah rather than you're right about this yeah so that I think that's kind of almost professional paralysis yeah which is about your own nervousness and anxiety about the topic and the what next is probably one of the biggest pitfalls I think the other pitfall is probably what we sometimes do and other professionals as well as we can sanitize the language that children use or we yeah or we try and get very outcome focused if you like as well so we've had it very many times where we professionals refer children to us and they say this child has disclosed a penile vaginal rape and like is that actually what they said like what, what yeah. did they actually say because the language they use is really important and if you use the language they've used then it shows that you've listened to them that's interesting so if you were doing referral it's best to use refer in the same way using the language that the child has absolutely, used absolutely yeah because then it, it can't get lost in translation yeah we frequently get it where at the, like, we're worried about this child's sexualized behaviors and it's like well what actually are you worried about you need to describe what it is that you're worried about yeah and i remember when i came you had specifically said about making sure that you clarify terms so if a child is using a term making sure that actually it means the same to you as it does to them absolutely yeah 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 so and you get all sorts of interesting language that children describe their body parts with so absolutely use their words some of them don't have words and sometimes you might have to offer a word and clarify that is this what you you know is this an acceptable yeah. word to use but yeah absolutely not making assumptions about what you've heard and what that means and providing the opportunity and that reflection is really good so if a child says something to you while your mind is thinking oh golly what do I do now you can take that moment to reflect back to them thank you for telling me that can I just check so I got this right you said that and then use their words to describe what they've said to you back to them and that gives you an opportunity to clarify the language yeah but again shows that you've really listened and in terms of young people being referred to yourself, what is that actual process and over what timescales would you want to be involved? So for children in, um, following recent sexual abuse, we like to see them sooner rather than later for a number of reasons. I would say the majority of our referrals come from the police. A fair chunk come from children's social care and for some of the older young people that we see, they're self-referrals. So it might come from the young person themselves, a family member or another professional supporting them in that context. We usually take some information, whatever information we have to hand. And again, very early on, if whether it's the young person we're speaking to, a parent or a professional, we want to inject that choice. So this yeah. is what we could do for them. They don't have to decide whether they want it or, um, but this is what we could do and this is when we could see them if they'd like to be seen. There's a bit of triaging in that, so if there are some situations in which there are medical needs. So emergency yeah. contraception would be one, for example, a HIV prophylaxis, you've only got 72 hours to give that, um, and ideally within 24 hours. So there is some medical triaging that goes on within the element of their choice and control still. And if we're talking about a recent sexual assault or rape, then we have to consider forensic intimate samples as well, and they have a shelf life as well. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit more about the forensic aspect to your work and how taking forensic samples differ to us taking a standard sample in the hospital? What's your process and how is that different? Yeah, so essentially every contact leaves a trace is, is the kind of CSI terminology. So we know that people being with other people in any context it can there can be an exchange of samples that might be skin cells that might be saliva that might be semen it might be blood and within that you may find dna 
our samples that we take, we do do health samples, but the forensic samples that we take are essentially thinking about what we know, what they've told us, what the information we have, where might we get samples that may help a criminal process, uh, an investigation. So much of the samples that we do would be intimate samples from the vagina or the anus or the mouth. They might be skin samples if there's certain details about the assault and you have to take them very carefully because all the technology is excellent. So what you're trying to do is take them in a way that minimises you contaminating the scene. So we have to wear funny outfits and masks and many pairs of gloves and so on and so forth. And that's all about making sure the samples that we take of the best quality so that we give that young person or that child the best shot at a criminal justice process. How long are the samples then kept for? It, so it depends. So not all samples are analysed. Yeah. So the, for police cases, we give the samples to the police and then they make a rationale about which ones they will analyse. And lots of different decision-making comes into that. For some children that we see as self-referrals, that's when they come without the police. They may change their mind and want to go to the police at a later stage, but right then they're not sure. We would still safeguard them and share information with children's social care, but we don't give the police the samples. So we store their samples until they're 25 at the moment. And you mentioned before about how quickly the samples need to be taken. Could you give us an indication of how long? It depends on the samples and it depends on the individual characteristics of that child. So little children, for example, are incredibly active. And they wash most days, they spill things on them, they're you know, people wipe their faces. So intimate samples or, or, or skin samples are generally go quite quickly in, in very young children, probably within two or three days. For an older post-pubertal girl, for example, who is alleging a penile vaginal rape, you may find usable DNA up to seven days. That's sort of the, the latest, give or take. Generally speaking, the sooner the better, because yeah. washing, toileting, bathing, all of those kind of things reduce the likelihood. Clothing is much less perishable, if you like. Okay. And so sometimes the police um, will ask for clothing that may be relevant to when the assault happened because we know that um, biological samples can be usable for quite a long time if they're in material if you like yeah i'm just thinking going back to the early discussion about the referral process and having i was thinking in a district general hospital we would often have a meeting with the police would you want to be involved in that? We would love to be, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we, we very much like to be involved, even if it's a child or young person that we don't end up seeing. I, th I think we bring something to the table in terms of, you know, and, and certainly there's been situations where we haven't been involved and then we have seen a child and actually if we were involved two days earlier, we would have said, this is high risk for yeah. HIV. Sometimes actually the strategy meetings can take hours or sometimes it's the next day that the strategy meetings sometimes take place. Yeah, and a lot of the health sort of, not necessarily urgent health needs, because I think people are really good at picking up those, but the sort of immediate um, or near immediate health needs, sometimes you need a bit of a steer on, because things like emergency contraception doesn't come naturally to paediatricians always, yeah. so it's it's not something I think that you're very often very confident about. Yeah, and um, what are those health needs and that you would be addressing here or you would be able to help advise on? Yeah, so so a lot of people when they think about the work we do, they think about forensic and they think about yeah. evidence, um, which is part, but it's not all of it. Like I said, I think probably the most important bit is responding in the right way to yeah. that child or young person is probably the most important thing we do and probably the thing that has the biggest impact. In terms of health and well-being, so there are some things we can offer that may prevent future potential harm. So emergency contraception would be one. Yeah. 
medications to prevent HIV, acquisition if what's happened carries that risk, hepatitis B vaccination if you have it quickly may prevent hepatitis B acquisition. We routinely create a conversational space to think about what the impact is for for them in the context of their life more generally. So we talk about self-harm, we talk about feelings of suicide, we explore safety, other areas of risk, who they trust, who they could talk to. And that kind of builds a platform to think about or make suggestions or offers about what might be helpful moving on in terms of therapeutic services, um, in terms of other organisations like drugs and alcohol services, child mental health assessments, independent sexual violence advisors, that kind of thing. So it's really a snapshot for what life is like for them and considering their life and their strengths and their hopes and their futures and their challenges in the context of a recent trauma giving them a a menu if you like of the things that are available to them and then facilitating those referrals on their behalf there's a lot of paperwork involved and what we we sometimes call ourselves the you know the child's PA because all the family's PA because as a parent or carer or corporate parent or a young person yourself trying to navigate all these systems is really difficult so we try and sometimes take out that bit of paperwork for them really and try and make those things happen behind the scenes yeah and thinking about self-harm there are quite a few young people who have encountered on the ward who have a history of trauma secondary to historical sexual abuse do you have any key resources or signposting for those young people and their parents um that's a good question so i would say for non-recent sexual abuse how you respond in the moment is just as important as recent sexual abuse sometimes i think and and not intentionally but sometimes without meaning agencies sometimes think well that happened years ago Mm. it's not you know we don't need to respond in quite the same way but remember i talked about how long it takes a child to tell so if it's taken them that long to tell and they've told you because they trust you you know you've been identified as someone who they think might be able to help them with this thing that's happened to them and how they're still dealing with that then that has to be responded to in just the same way so it's the same responses the same timeliness I would say and you can you know the, the options available to them should be exactly the same really so therapeutic services are still there they're for children who've experienced harm at any stage in their life locally we're really lucky we have the greenhouse which is a specialist therapeutic provider for children and young people in the context of sexual harm they've got stacks of great resources on their website so the greenhouse the greenhouse including a booklet for parents and carers written by parents and carers which is really good another great organization somerset phoenix project who do also provide training education and support for children but they have some great resources including um, a a kind of guide to trauma for professionals um, and and other such resources. So they're they're worth a look at. I would say the Centre for Expertise on Child Sexual Abuse, which is um, an organisation that covers England and Wales, have some really great resources which are freely available. I think the two most helpful resources for generic health professionals is that they have a resource on signs and indicators of sexual abuse. So it's it's a framework for thinking about those little niggles that you have and what they are and helping you explore those in context and another complementary resource is communicating with children which is then a resource that's evidence informed that helps you start conversations with children when you're worried right and many of us won't have been involved directly in 
child sexual abuse examinations, but do have experience of performing intimate examinations fairly regularly. Do you have any general advice for those scenarios? Yeah, I think a lot of the principles apply, right? Yeah. Bod- bodily autonomy is really important and it's never too early to learn that. So I think at a very early age you can give children choice and control about it, Look, using their language, explaining what you'd like to do and why you'd like to do it in, in a way that's developmentally appropriate. And I think there's also a big lesson to be learned when children say no. I think it's balancing that kind of an inpatient environment. How essential is it that you look at their bottom in the context of what they've come in with and if children are very clear about I don't want that and it's not the most important part of your assessment I think we should be quite respectful of those really clear communication (laughs) and I think that sometimes can be hard because you want to do a thorough job and make sure you you know dot all the i's and cross all the t's but I think you also have to think about the message in the long term there are some occasions where obviously you need to do what you need to do but there are ways in which you can do that You you can get to that place that's interesting. I observed a doctor once who every time they did an intimate examination, they reinforced the pants rule with young children. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, I really liked yeah, that. Yeah. And so that's available on the NSPCC website, that campaign, if people yeah, haven't come I love, across uh, that. It's, it's a, such a simple message, and, but so important. And we do that here. I would say probably 10, 15% of the children and young people see don't want us to examine them. And that's okay. And actually, we congratulate them on that say thank you so much for being very clear about what you don't want and actually you know what a great message to learn that they've they've come from a situation they had no choice and control no bodily autonomy they've come here we've given them choice we've enabled them to have a voice to tell us what their choice was and more importantly we've then respected that choice even though we are there's a slight power imbalance but we're a professional and they're a patient and there always will be a slight power imbalance we've respected that so i think that message is is just as important thank you that's really helpful i was thinking about the other times where we might come across young people in this context and i was thinking that actually many young people who've been exploited or trafficked have high health needs and i wondered if that's something that you've noticed in your work yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. There's some great research out there in children who've been trafficked or, and or sexually exploited. And one of the scary statistics, I can't remember which paper it came from that sticks in my mind, it's something like 90% of them had contact with a health professional during that period of exploitation or trafficking. So they are there, they are in front of us, but they're not wearing the hat that says, this is happening to me. And some of the things, a lot of it was around sexual health screening. A lot of it actually was around dentistry, I think. Oh, that's interesting, (laughs) dentistry. I think an abscess is quite difficult to ignore. You're very likely to seek health input for a dental abscess. Accessing contraception, both preventative and and emergency contraception. A fair chunk of them actually had significant head trauma. Uh, A a fair number ended up on HDU or ICU. So I think you have to be a little bit vigilant about some of these presentations, particularly to the emergency department. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to move on now to talk about the Purple Book update. So getting right back to basics, when we talk about the Purple Book, what is it? So the Purple Book, it's the physical signs of child sexual abuse. So myself and Dr Joe Gifford are the co-clinical leads for the third edition for this. So it's been around a while and it's essentially a collection of systematic reviews into the physical signs that you might see in the context of child sexual abuse. What is the evidence base for this physical presentation? And it puts all that information together so that you can inform your practice 
It also has a good practice evidence in section as well to sort of help people working in the field to do it in a good way, essentially. So it's great. It's very much aligned with the rest of the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health Child Protection Evidence Systematic Review. So it's a similar methodology and they're all fantastic and they're obviously all freely available for anyone who's a member of the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health. What I think is particularly great about the Purple Book is that it's very much a collaborative piece of work. So this third edition is, is led by the Royal College but it is co-written by the Faculty of Forensic and Legal Medicine, the American Academy of Paediatricians and this year the Royal Australasian College of Physicians as well. So it's really global. We've also this year got representation of lived experience from the National Association of People of Youth and Childhood which I just think makes it such a great resource. Although it's primarily useful to people seeing children in the context of sexual abuse there's some fantastic chapters that help all of us so there's a whole chapter on the accidental injuries in Mm. in children that you might see and when should you be worried there's a whole section about bleeding in prepubertal children what might that be when should you be worried so there's some really good stuff in it oh great and reflecting on the patient voice aspect and lived experience now in the purple book what did you learn from that so yeah, this was the first time we had lived experience representation. I mean, the one thing I love about the Purple Book is that a lot of people are worried about this topic. And I think some of that is that the evidence base is quite young, if you like. And that's essentially the bedrock that we walk on, isn't it? In all, across all medicine, the, the decisions we make are underpinned by what bodies of evidence are telling us works, yeah. as well as our experience as well. So the Purple Book is essentially the bedrock for this field. What I think is important, and I think increasingly we understand that evidence is not just about what experts think or what papers tell us. Evidence and, can, and expertise can come from a number of different places. I think there's nothing more powerful than the lived experience. It, it's the why behind why this book exists. Yeah. It keeps us grounded in that. Yeah. And one area that's been updated is the advice regarding terminology for interpretation of findings. And many of us who've experienced of writing safeguarding reports can struggle with this and trying to appropriately communicate our level of concern to others, particularly those working outside of healthcare, so police or social care. It can be really challenging and I find it really interesting and fantastic that you've now got a new terminology section. So I wonder if you could tell us about that and how it's been benchmarked. Yeah, you know, as a practitioner, I've been involved in a serious case review myself where my language that I use as an early consultant was ambiguous. What I thought I was trying to convey wasn't what other professionals heard. And it was partly in how we communicated, but a lot of it was about the language that I tried to use. So one person's suggestive is not the same as another person's suggestive. Yeah. So I think, you know, we have to be really mindful about language. And so yes, this version of the book, it's the first time we've introduced a framework around the terminology of interpretation. But it's essentially given you a framework for supportive of, which is the highest ranking of evidence, suggestive, a sort of a non-specific and a neutral finding. And it lets you think about the finding in isolation. So hymenal laceration. So laceration to the bit of skin around the entrance to the vagina would be in the supportive of penetrative vaginal injury. You then think about it in the context of the information that you have. So if you have a young person who said, I've been raped, by my boyfriend then you can say that finding is supportive of this which is supportive of the account that she has provided and collectively that gives you a very clear 
opinion so yeah I hope it will be helpful I think it will not be harmful because I think it will help us all try to be talking the same language is a really good place yeah and I think it sounds to me it'd be useful whatever safeguarding style of report you're doing absolutely yeah Um, What else is new in the Purple Book? We've got a new chapter on the oral signs of child sexual abuse, uh, for which there's very little evidence, so don't get too excited about that, but (laughs) yes, we're asking the questions. We've asked a few questions of the literature to think about, should we be more mindful about injuries seen in black skin, brown skin? Might that impact on healing and therefore what we see? Again, the research isn't great, but we're asking these questions of the research. And then, yeah, there's some more good practice guidance on anal genital warts in children, vaginal bleeding in prepubertal children. Great. For those wanting to learn more about child safeguarding and particularly child sexual abuse are there any other resources that you would recommend that you've not already mentioned no I think I probably what I recommend particularly for trainees is just you've got to immerse yourself in it yeah as in I think there's nothing more helpful when you're training to be seeing children to be exercising those brain cells to be engaging with the topic to be exploring your thoughts and feelings about it to be looking at the evidence base in the context of physical child I think that's the only way really to see if you enjoy it if you're passionate about it but also hang that learning on a real scenario I would encourage people to not shy away from seeing the child with with an injury when they're on call to seek out other opportunities so to go and visit your site go and spend a day get involved in things like child death panels or really try and get the exposure may not be for you but at least you'll have a better understanding of it I think that's probably for trainees the the biggest message I would I would give and I think don't be afraid to engage with it as on an emotional level it's a really self-care is a really tricky thing and lots of people always ask me about oh how do you manage in this job and so on and so forth and I think I don't feel the work I do is any more impactful than any other job within paediatrics or within healthcare. There are all aspects of our job which we struggle with. It's not always necessarily the content of the patient, it may be other factors. So the environment you're working in, what's going on for you at home. And for me, the children I'm seeing, I know why I'm seeing them. So you know, we were starting at this place already. And for me, that sometimes I think that's less impactful than not knowing what's going to walk in on the day that you're on call for paediatrics it could be anything so there's that sort of trepidation sometimes about that whereas I I know what I'm going to see so I think self-care is really interesting but I think you do have to engage a little bit with the topic but it's getting the balance right to maintain your ability to do your job but I think if you don't feel the joy sometimes because we meet some wonderful young people um, and they and they truly are and they tell us wonderful things and we hear about great stuff that's going on for them and we hear sad stuff too and I think it's important that we engage on an emotional level with both of those a little bit and we, we, we feel it a bit to maintain the humanity really in the service that we deliver. Yeah and who else is involved in the service? We have a group of doctors, nurses, crisis workers, psychologists admin and then leadership positions as well so it's a real collaborative group and we all bring something to the table we all come from very different places as well you know some members of our team have lived experience and I think that really brings something to the table as well I've got some of my own personal experience which I think it's slightly unusual it's not typical child sexual abuse lived experience but I recognize in hindsight that I bring something to the table with it so um so when I was nine years old my best friend at the time went missing for a couple of days uh, and she was found um, she'd been sexually assaulted by a 
um, someone who had a history of um, sexual offences against children and sadly he killed her as well so she was sexually assaulted, murdered um, when I was nine years old so um, quite un very unusual sexually, that's a rare type of sexual abuse um, very rare so most sexual abuse happens in the context of tr trusted relationships but what I learnt and I think what I bring into my consultations is I'm very mindful of the impact Obviously for Tiffany, you know, her life ended, but the subsequent impact on her family went on for years, for decades, on her on her brother, on her father, on her stepmother, you know, on our friends, um, on society. There was a lot of stranger danger chat, police were going around the school, mm. you know, I was interviewed when she was missing in case I knew where she may have gone, that kind of thing. So that impact, I think we have to recognise it's not just about the child it's about everyone around them as well. So I think my experience there, I'm very tuned into that. So I will go the extra mile because I know although it's the child is the one at the centre of that, you have to be mindful of the impact on the people around them. And particularly their trusted adult, if they have one, um, or the non-abusing parent or carer because they will be there forever. So they have to be looked after to look after that child. And I think that's a really important message as well. And sometimes we can get focused on the child and forget about them, forget about the siblings, forget about sometimes the friends. A lot of young people, the first person they tell is a friend at school. So we have to be mindful of that. And we have to think about that in society as well, about the broader impact. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Do you think that influenced your career path? That Probably, experience? yeah. <laughs> and I guess you can think about impact in negative and positive ways. Yeah. You know, for me, every young person or every child I see, they could be somebody's Tiffany. So, yeah. you know, I do engage with it on a personal level within boundaries. I am doing this job probably partly because of, of yeah. you know, what I experienced as a child myself. And I think, you know, that's a positive impact. And mm. That's a hopeful kind yeah. of outcome from engaging with the topic. Yeah. Do you have any other messages for listeners? I think be brave, be hopeful, don't be frightened. You know, we th sexual abuse is awful, but I think what we would like to do is prevent it from happening and yeah. we're not going to do that unless we think about it we talk about it we create space for children tell us about what life is like for them yeah so i think all of those are messages that you can do in in day-to-day -day life both personal life your social life and your professional life as well thank you and we finally we end every podcast by asking our guest for a book recommendation and it doesn't need to be medical but i just wondered what you would recommend? I'm glad you gave me a warning about <laughs> I have a few. Four. I have four, don't I? I said I was going to recommend. <laughs> yes, I'm ready. I think it was. That's so good. The first one was a book that I've read, which is a fiction called My Dark Vanessa. And it is about a uh, young person who's abused by a teacher. Yeah. But it's sort of the story starts 15, 20 years later. Okay. So it's quite a heavy topic, but I think it illustrates some of the thoughts and feelings that a person who's been sexually abused in that context may have. Definitely worth reading. Yeah. Uh, another good one is a poetry book actually, Bird of Winter by Alice Hillier, and yeah. that talks about her sexual harm by family member when she was very young. She also had access to like um, health records. So some of the poems she write interlaced with extracts from what professionals were seeing at the time. Yeah. And so I think that's really interesting mm. because those pe people were seeing things before she told anybody yeah. and she's drawn that together. 
two more, sorry. Oh, no. Um, I haven't read this one, but Candice Harris, who's a lived experience consultant, has written a book called um, Indescribable, and that is a sort of a memoir of her chronic sexual abuse when she was living in South Africa. Yeah. And I've heard her speak, and she's incredible to hear talk, and and so hopeful as well. She's a real, really positive person. Yeah. And then if you're not into books, yeah, I tell everyone this. I probably told you this, Felicity, when you came to spend the day. Episode one of the Netflix series um, Unbelievable was worth watching, and that's just because it gives a fantastic overview on what it's like when we ask a young person to tell us what's happened to them over and over and over and over again and what they experience when we do that it's all I mean it's like a it's a gritty drama as well and there's a happy ending um so the whole thing is worth watching but that first episode is really gives a really good flavor for how not to do a trauma-informed consultation if you like I do read books on other topics as well I want to make that very clear I don't just read work related I do I do read other things but um but yeah those those are my recommendations fantastic thank you that's my CPD recommendation (laughs) thank you thank you so much for joining me today I've learned so much from this conversation and I hope listeners have too thank you very much thank you That's all for this episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch via our email address, podcast at pizzahub.co.uk or via the Pizzahub website. Equally, if you'd like to get involved, we always welcome your voices, so please do get in touch. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening.